Good morning. Oh, oh, how you guys doing? Woo, it is a, it's a party in here this morning. I, I was in the back. It feels like, the church kind of feels like a mullet right now. Business up front, a party in the back. Um, <laughs> this is going to be a wild four weeks for us. We're packing way too many people into this building, and we're throwing way too much at you. We're trying to really, as we step forward into our new space in a month, um, we're trying to really build back up our volunteer culture in a way that maybe we haven't seen since pre-COVID. And so we're throwing a lot at you. Um, and so just be cool with what this morning feels like. Uh, be cool with the mullet. Be cool with the party in the back. If your kids are here, let them run, let them play, let them high five, let them have fun. A couple things, and then I'll start preaching. The first is this. As we move to our next space, um, our best estimates right now is that we're probably going to spend twelve dollars to $15,000 to do this move really well. That includes things like new music equipment. That includes things like a new stage because apparently the people in the back can't see me despite my massive 5'7 frame. Joseph, can you see me back there, bro? You gave me a thumbs up. You can? Yeah, no need, no need for a stay. Okay. Um, new signage, all that sort of stuff. So this Sunday and next Sunday, we'll have a giving box all the way in the back. And if the Lord moves you in generosity to give to this church, that'd be, that'd be awesome. We'd be really excited about that. And we would make sure that we leverage that generosity to the best of our ability. Second thing is this, Carlos has already highlighted it, but we really want to put volunteers and leaders in front of you for these four weeks. So after the sermon, we're going to put Luke Snowden in front of you. He leads our roots ministry. This is a big deal. We're going to root for him. We're going to thank God for him. We're going to pray for him. And then he's going to try and trick you into serving with him. So if you got a Bible, go and get that thing open to Romans chapter eight. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it on the screen for you. And as you flip to Romans chapter eight, go ahead and just congratulate yourself because we finally made it. This last month, all of October, we've spent strictly in the 8th chapter of Romans. We said we're going to spend all of October in Romans chapter 8. And so this is our fifth Sunday in this chapter. And um, after we get done with Romans chapter 8, it turns out there are eight other chapters in Romans. And so it doesn't end with Romans 8. So once we get through that, give yourself a round of applause and then suck it up and get back into the book of Romans. Um, This has been, I don't know about you guys, but Romans 8 for me has been an amazing, spiritually stupefying, theologically inebriating month as we've looked at all of these dazzling truths that are just brimming out of the ears of Romans chapter 8. Um, One scholar, N.T. Wright, says, what Romans 8 does is it picks up all the themes from the letter so far and whirls them around like a coda at the end of a symphonic movement. That's why some people have referred to Romans chapter 8 as the greatest chapter ever written, situated in the middle of what people have called the greatest letter ever written. So if you haven't been with us for Romans 8, that's cool. Let me give you the Spark Notes version. Here's all of the dizzying, just amazing, dazzling truths that Paul has brought to our attention in Romans 8. You, as a believer, you are no longer condemned. You are a co-heir with Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the living God. 
you will inherit the new creation. You will be a conqueror and you will be conformed into the image of Jesus because God works together for good everything that happens to the believer. So as we come to the crescendo of Romans 8, the very tippy top of that mountain, what Paul wants to do is take that truth one step farther. Not only, not only will God use your pain, your hurt, your suffering, and your shame to conform you into the image of Jesus, but it's actually in your hurt, shame, suffering, and pain that you rule and reign with King Jesus. In other words, in the kingdom of God, Dying is conquering. The way up is the way down. Humbling yourself is being exalted. Where am I getting this from? Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of the word of God. Paul said all these amazing things in Romans 8. And then Paul ends the way any of us would end if we were writing these things. What do you even say to all of these things? And Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And friends, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. (laughs) For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, There are people in this room right now who are deathly anxious about falling out of your grip. There are people right now who are anxious about losing their salvation. And Father, I pray that through the preaching of your word, you would preach to them. That you would remind them that there is no circumstance that can separate them. And there is no power that can separate them from the love of God. And for those of us in this room right now who are suffering, I pray that we might recognize that in Christ, we are actually conquering. So it's in the precious name of Jesus that all of God's people prayed. Amen. You can have a seat.
you're justified. You're not condemned. You have the Holy Spirit. You're going to inherit the cosmos. You're going to rule and reign with Jesus forever. What do you say to all of this? Well, you say what Paul said in the letter, which is, God, if this is all true, then God must be for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? I don't know if you know this, that God is for you. But God is more for you than you are for you. And like another way of saying that is God is more pro-coal than coal is. And if God is more pro-coal than coal is, then God will make sure that nothing ever separates coal from the love of God. Paul says this in two different ways. In verse 35, what he does is he brainstorms some of the worst experiences that he can come up with. Look at verse 35. The experiences that he brainstorms are tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And what Paul does is he lists all those experiences and then he concludes that none of these experiences could ever separate you from the love of God. That's amazing, right? There's things the sword can do to you. The sword can chop your head off, but it can't sever you from your faith in Jesus. Right? Danger can take away your life, but it can't take away your faith. Hunger, famine. Famine can make your hunger, right? It can, it can make your stomach hunger. It can starve your stomach, but what famine can't do is starve your faith. So Paul looks at all these things and he says, none of that's going to get in your way of Jesus Christ. And then a few verses later in 38 through 39, he brainstorms not just experiences, but it seems like Paul is kind of reaching for what are some of the most powerful forces in the cosmos I can think of. And in verses 38 through 39, he comes up with the list of death and life angels and rulers, things present, and by the way, things that are coming down the pipeline, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Paul lists all of these powers, and then he concludes that none of them can separate you from the love of God. So I don't know if you feel what Paul's trying to do, but what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to get you to taste the absolute eternal security that you have in Christ Jesus. And then sandwiched between those two huge promises, just sandwiched there in the middle of those two lists is, I think, an even stranger promise. Because what Paul's going to say in between those two lists is that not only is there nothing that can separate you from Jesus' love, but everything that tries to separate you from the love of Jesus will actually be the means by which you conquer alongside of Jesus. And not only will you conquer alongside of Jesus, but apparently the text says that Jesus is going to make you into more than a conqueror. In this truth, that every experience you have in the cosmos will ultimately conform you into a co-conqueror with Christ, this truth is absolutely beautiful, amen? And it's totally misunderstood, right? Here's, let's just focus really quickly, just a couple minutes on how this gets really, really badly twisted out of proportion with Christians. Here's the way it gets misunderstood. What we do is we try to fight God's war by using the devil's weapons. We try to, 
we see this glorious promise that we're going to conquer alongside of Jesus. And what we try to do is we try to fight God's war with the devil's weapons. In other words, we see this wonderful promise that we're supposed to be more than conquerors alongside of Jesus. And what we do is we divorce that promise from the person of Christ. And so we end up holding on to the promise of being a conqueror, but we try to fulfill that promise in ways that are utterly foreign to the way of Jesus. Have you ever seen this happen? Here, here are some of the, when we get off track with that, here are some of the different ways that we try to conquer the cosmos wrongly. We try to conquer for God's kingdom by arguing all of the time, by bullying and name-calling and shaming our enemies. By responding to, to everything in culture with anger and vitriol, or by grabbing for worldly expressions of power. And, and the problem with all of those models shaming, bullying, arguing, anger, vitriol, grabbing for worldly expressions of power the problem with all those models of conquering is that those are all pagan ways of trying to conquer the world. That's, that's, that's what I mean when I talk about trying to fight God's war with the devil's weapons. Those are all worldly ways of throwing around our power and it doesn't work in God's kingdom. It's not the way that we conquer. And we know that's not the way that we conquer because what happened 2,000 years ago? Well, 2,000 years ago, Rome tried to exercise its power by putting a man named Jesus on the cross. And Jesus exercised his power by willingly going to the cross. Whose kingdom won? It's been 2,000 years. Are you a Roman citizen or are you a Christian? You're a Christian. God's kingdom is still around. So we know that it's not by putting other people on the cross that we conquer. It's actually by willingly going to the cross that we conquer. It's not just that we conquer despite the cross. It's actually through the cross that we're conquerors. This is so strange. But look at verse 37. Right, Verse 37, that's where Paul says this. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all of what things are we more than conquerors? Well, that's in verse 36. Being killed and being slaughtered. What? Where'd Paul get this idea from? What's in your Bible? Look at verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. So what Paul sees when he looks at the life of Christ is he sees a substructure that our lives are supposed to imitate. Apparently, it was the one who was crucified, who was exalted. And so apparently, the way down is the way up. And this is all over the Bible. If you look back in Genesis in the Old Testament, Joseph is thrown into the pit, but it's precisely because of the pit that he's exalted into royalty and able to save many lives. In Exodus, Moses is thrown into the river in a basket as a baby, and that river delivered him to Pharaoh's courts. So when Paul says that it's in our suffering, in our being slaughtered, and in our being killed that we're more than conquerors, Paul's not just pulling this out of thin air. Paul's not just making things up. He's got thousands of years of evidence to prove this point. This is the way it works in the entire Old Testament. It's actually, Moses didn't just conquer despite the river. It's how he conquered. Joseph didn't just conquer despite being thrown into a pit. The pit was how he conquered. 
Jesus didn't just conquer despite the cross. The cross was how he conquered. And by the way, that's kind of wrong because Paul's phrase is more than conquerors. What's that mean? And that, that's interesting, right? I mean, to be a conqueror would be one thing, but to be more than a conqueror? Well, here's one interpretation that was really helpful for me. One Bible teacher noticed that it's more than conquerors because when you conquer somebody, you kill them, right? But to be more than a conqueror is to conquer somebody and then recruit them to serve in your army. So you don't just conquer them. You also recruit them for your own purposes. That's awesome, right? And how in the world is that true? Why in the world are you more than a conqueror in your suffering? And the answer is because in your wounds, if you're rooted in Jesus, in your wounds, your wounds will transform you. Because without your wounds, we just get lost in the busyness of life. And without suffering and hurt and without wounds, we just get lost in superficiality, checking off boxes. And we end up drifting into deeper and deeper superficiality. And what suffering does is it drags you underneath the shallowness of your life. Smashes you through what you thought was the bottom floor of your heart. And you find a cavity underneath that floor. And then it smashes you through that bottom floor and you find another cavity beneath that until you're finally in the basement of your heart where it's only you and Christ Jesus. And when you're in the basement of your heart because of your suffering, all of your illusions about yourself and all of your illusions about your life disappear. It turns out that suffering teaches us that you're not the parts of yourself that you put on display for others. Turns out that life is not about keeping score. Turns out that life is not about superficiality. Turns out that life is not about image management and managing your reputation. In the bottom floor of the heart, you realize that life is about Jesus. And so ironically, the suffering that sought to destroy you in the sovereignty of God becomes less like something that will destroy you and it becomes more like an escort that drives you closer to Christ. So let's ask that question again. Why in the world... Are you more than a conqueror in your suffering? And it's because your deepest wounds in life are often where your greatest gifts to the world come from. You know this. The man who struggles with alcoholism conquers by defeating his addiction, but he becomes more than a conqueror when he uses his story to help hundreds of other men defeat their addictions. Or the woman who endures hurt and suffering and miscarriage. She conquers when she praises God through her tears, but she's more than a conqueror when she uses her story to comfort dozens of younger mothers who go through miscarriage. It's the deepest wound where sometimes our greatest gifts come out. The couple who endure some deep and dark seasons of their marriage, they conquer when they emerge victoriously with their marriage covenant intact, but they become more than conquerors when they use their suffering to help dozens of other young couples through marriage counseling. So it turns out that when you're in Christ, your wounds are not fatal, amen? When you're in Christ, your wounds are more like a quiver that you can pull an arrow from to shoot at the enemy. And there's a, there's a theological reason for the fact that your greatest gifts often come from your deepest wounds. And the theological reason for that is because it's the gospel, yo. Jesus 
hanging on the cross, paying for the sins of the world, atoning for the sins of the world, a Roman soldier walks up to the crucified Christ and he jabs Jesus aside with a spear. And out of Jesus' side, out of that wound, come bloods, comes blood and water, which is the blood that covers us and the water that cleanses us. So it turns out that the gift of the gospel comes from what? The gift of the gospel comes from the wound. And so I think, guys, I think our application this morning is really simple. I think our application is to pay attention to Christ when you suffer. Like without Jesus, suffering will make you smaller. Without Jesus, suffering will make you bitter and resentful and a victim. Without Jesus... Suffering will make you want to retaliate. So we learn to suffer faithfully by imitating Christ on the cross, right? We look really carefully at Christ on the cross. We hold him in our minds and our hearts and we look at him and gaze at him until we can finally imitate him. Because you, you, that's how you learn in life. You learn by imitating, right? And that's what makes being a parent so hard, right? Is the fact that those big brown eyes are always on you. <laughs> imitating you, taking his cues from you, always fixed on you, trying to, trying to learn how to live by watching. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Here's the way that Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Quote, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what's, what's Paul's model of transformation in 2 Corinthians? It's by looking at Jesus that you get transformed into Jesus. We become by beholding, as tons of other people have said before, right? And you see this, you see this happen when your kids look at you and they try to pattern their lives off of you and somehow, some way, they kind of transform into your image. I'm telling you, if you don't have a kid, man, those little boogers, those little boogers are not human beings, they're human seeings, you know? Seeing is way more fundamental to their being. They, they look and then they pattern. They behold and then they change. They gaze and, and then they imitate. That's the way that everybody learns, whether you're an adult or whether you're little. You, you behold and, and then you become. And um, the other day at lunch, uh, I was having lunch with uh, Della and, and Russell and I had We Will Rock You by Queen blasting because that's what you want to listen to when you're eating lunch, right? And so... I'm just blasting Queen at, at the lunch table during lunch right now. And I'm going all in on this, right? I'm like mouthing the words, you know, we will, we will rock you. And I'm taking my fist. I'm like pounding along to it, doing the. And if you know the song, you know that it ends with that classic guitar solo, right? And so like during that classic guitar solo, I go all in, I'm doing my guitar solo, like I'm air guitaring and everything like that. And then in the middle of my performance, I look into the audience, my two kids, I look, I look into the audience and I see Russell just like staring at me, you know, he's like taking it all in, big brown eyes, just watching. And then he's imitating he doesn't know the words to We Will Rock You, but he's trying to sing along, right? He's going, you know, trying to figure it out. Um, pounding along with me. 
It's like imitating it all. He's like, how do I do that? How do I do this? Right? He's looking at me. And the dude doesn't even know that there's strings on a guitar, but he's still air guitaring, right? So he's like trying to figure that. He doesn't even know there's six strings on a guitar, but he's trying to air guitar like as I'm playing the air guitar. And I'm watching Russell watching me, beholding Russell, beholding me, looking at Russell, looking at me, seeing him imitate me. And all of a sudden I have this profound realization where I'm like, oh my gosh, this is how transformation happens. We become by beholding. We're transformed by imitating Jesus. And so I think that this is profound because if we want to conquer like Christ, we have to look at Christ a lot. If you want to rule and reign like the world, that's pretty easy. Just keep your eyes glued to the world. The world will show you how to try and rule and reign in the world by throwing around worldly power. Just watch how politicians bully one another. Watch how celebrities get their way by whining about everything and then just imitate them. It might work. You might gain power. You might have an impact. You might gain influence. But if you do, it won't be for God's kingdom. Because if you want to conquer like Christ, don't look at the world. Look at the cross. And when you pay close attention to the cross, and when you behold Jesus on the cross day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, I think that the Holy Spirit will help you do something profound and something strange with your life. All of a sudden, the more you behold Jesus, the more you discover yourself singing the same song that Jesus is singing mouthing the same words that Jesus is singing. You find yourself air guitaring the way that Jesus air guitars. You find yourself imitating Jesus on the cross, even in your suffering, especially in your suffering. And somehow, some way, it's through our suffering that the kingdom of God is ushered into the world. I don't know. You see this type of conquering every once in a while, though, don't you? Where somebody conquers by suffering faithfully. It's not a conquering that boasts like the world. It's not a conquering that rages behind the keyboard. It's not a conquering that throws around worldly power. It's not a conquering that draws attention to itself. When you see somebody who's more than a conqueror, it's generally, it's the type of conquering that you see when a man is diagnosed with cancer. And you know that he has every worldly reason to sulk by himself. And he has every reason to throw a fit and to become bitter and resentful and small and mean. And instead... He comes to church. And when he steps into church, everybody knows that the chemo is sucking the life out of him. Everybody knows that he's in the middle of a war. Everybody knows that he's suffering, and everybody knows that if anybody had a reason to shake his fist at God, it would be that man. And in the midst of his suffering, in the middle of the worship service, when that man takes that hand, and rather than shaking it at God, he raises it in adoration of God. When that happens, that's conquering. (laughs) It it is. You see it. 
And it sends this ripple effect all throughout the cosmos that's absolutely immeasurable. What happens is a victorious ripple is sent forth from that moment so that young men see how to suffer well and young women see how to suffer well and the kingdom of God through their lives is ushered in. And the cancer is not just conquered, it's more than conquered. It's defeated and then it's recruited to work for the purpose of the kingdom of God. This is strange stuff, guys. This is strange stuff, but it's in the text, right? You're more than a conqueror. And so if you want to conquer the cosmos and usher in the kingdom of God, you can. It's your destiny. It's what you were called to do. And I know that this is one of those promises that sounds so profound and so otherworldly that when it dawns itself on you, you want to throw your hands up and say something foolish. Like, I'm just an accountant. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a teacher. A conqueror. We have to realize the original context that the book of Romans was written. This promise would have been equally strange when it originally dawned itself upon the original audience. This letter wasn't written for the hero at the center of the Roman Colosseum. It was written for a couple of small churches that had been pushed to the fringes of society. Right? This wasn't written for heroes and conquerors. It was written for a handful of small churches that met in houses. They probably gathered in small, cramped houses on the outskirts of Rome among the poor and marginalized. And the people, by the way, who belonged to these churches were Jews who didn't even have Roman citizenship and Romans who didn't even have roots in the Jewish Old Testament. And so they were not in the center of the Roman world. They were not in the center of the Jewish world. They were not on anybody's list of ancient movers and shakers. They were not on anybody's list of voted most likely to make an impact. And these people weren't even good at being a church. It's not that they were just bad at being Roman citizens. They weren't even good at being a church. And then comes Roman 8, this strange promise that descends upon this eclectic group of little people, this strange promise that because the gospel of Jesus shines on them and says to them in their ostracized, pushed out of the limelight way, you're more than a conqueror. <laughs> Me? Us? <laughs> no, I'm... I'm just an accountant. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. No, you're not. You're not. You're a conqueror in Christ. You're not just the pastor of a small church. You're not just an accountant. You're not just a church member. All that stuff is your camouflage. (laughs) You're a conqueror. In fact, you are more than a conqueror. So if you want to conquer the cosmos and usher in the kingdom of God, you can because you have the Holy Spirit. But as you move forward and seek to conquer for the kingdom of God, just remember whose kingdom this is. This is King Jesus's kingdom. And so you can wear the crown, but it's got thorns. You can have the throne, but it's a cross. Because if you want to move King Jesus' kingdom forward, you have to be Jesus' hands and feet. And what happened to Jesus' hands and feet? They got pierced. 
because it's how the kingdom moves forward in the world. So um, let's all fix our eyes on the cross so that when suffering comes our way and when we get pierced and when we need to ad-lib in the moment, we can all air guitar like Christ. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that this church would be a church that doesn't seek to conquer by throwing other people on the cross, by shaming people when they disagree with us, by name-calling our friends if they debate with us, by trying to throw around worldly power and by trying to wield worldly influence. But instead, I pray that we would be the type of church that conquers through the cross. So it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen. Check. Hey, yo. I don't do the most, but I do a lot. I'm going to make a toast because we're still alive. No big. I feel like Pac. I shoot the shot. Coming in hot.